and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 218, A Zero-Sum Game. Last time, much of London's and Washington's fears started coming true after Pearl Harbor. Churchill's heart cracked when the Prince of Wales and Repulse were lost on December 10, 1941. For there went his heavy hitters in the Far East. Next, the Battle of the Java Sea helped finish off the Allied naval power in the Pacific. In other words, Japanese access to the Indian Ocean was now uncontested. Making it even worse for the Allies, by mid-February 1942, the Japanese controlled Hong Kong, the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, and the entirety of the Malay Peninsula, along with Singapore. This last part practically finished off Churchill's hopes for a turnaround in the war anytime soon. Further, as we have seen, despite their attempts, along with Chinese help, the Allies could not keep the Japanese out of Burma and soon were threatening the Indian border itself. But it would not be from Rangoon that Japanese planes would threaten Allied ships that had come around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. No, to fly from Rangoon south to the routes used by merchant ships was simply too far. Better to use Madagascar as a base for interdictions. Indeed, Berlin and Tokyo had already signed an agreement of spheres of interest that gave the Indian Ocean to Japan. Why wouldn't they take Madagascar? At least, this was the Admiralty's thinking. But if more proof of Japanese interest was needed, that came soon enough. On March 12th, again 1942, London found out about a meeting between Hitler and the C&C of the German Navy, Admiral Raider. The report read, in part, The Japanese have recognized the great strategic importance of Madagascar for naval warfare. According to reports submitted, they are planning to establish bases on Madagascar in addition to Ceylon in order to able to cripple sea traffic in the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea. From there, they could likewise successfully attack shipping around the Cape. Before establishing these bases, Japan will have to get German consent. For military reasons, such consent ought to be granted. Ten days later, another message was picked up and it was deciphered. It was the Germans saying they fully support a Japanese attack on Madagascar. Technically, the message was broken at the Government Code in Cipher School at Bletchley Park, but it was the purple machine given to Bletchley by the Americans in February 1941 that did the job. Purple could decipher Japanese diplomatic messages, so one was given to the British after Pearl Harbor. MI6 also brought forward proof that Berlin was offering and encouraging the Japanese to take Madagascar, and this eventually got to South Africa's Prime Minister, Field Marshal Jan Smuts, who was instantly and correctly concerned. He wanted, no, begged Churchill to intervene, to do something to stop this. Smuts ended his message to Churchill with, all our communications with our various war fronts and the empire in the east may be involved. Churchill, of course, already knew that. And Admiral Somerville, C&C Eastern Fleet, agreed. Further, he knew that his command had no chance against the Japanese. In other words, if they wanted to push into the Indian Ocean, there was damn little Somerville could do about it. 
As the Admiral told Churchill in regards to the war, it could not be won in the Indian Ocean, but it might very well be lost there. So, back to the day that the Axis were caught talking about Madagascar, Churchill wrote to General Ismay to ask the Chiefs of Staff Committee to pull out the plans for a combined operation against the island and dust it off. And yet, the men against this operation started to line up. General Brooke, chairman of the Chiefs of Staff Committee, continued to call it a secondary operation. And Lord Mountbatten agreed, saying our limited resources should stay focused on the main battlefronts. Regardless, the Chiefs of Staff and the Joint Planners could see the day when they would be called upon to create plans to remove the Japanese from Madagascar. And they decided it would be much better to do it now, before the Japanese were on the island. For them, the British, and for everybody, it was a zero-sum game. With that out of the way, it was important to look at the next hurdle, namely, the Americans. Churchill and the others with him had already decided that this would be an exclusively British operation, unlike Dakar and Syria, which immediately brought out several major political questions. First, FDR had made it quite clear that he was not a fan of any empire, and he may react, well, less than positively about this when he hears that the British were taking another island unto itself. But it went past political and moral reasons for FDR. The U.S. had just reopened its consulate in Tana, the capital of the island, after being closed for 22 years. And the island gave America mica and graphite needed in munitions production. And Washington was in talks to formalize this trade with Madagascar. The last thing they needed was having this shut down while an invasion and occupation went on. And for one who was known for writing action this day on his pieces of paper, the Prime Minister wrote to FDR, I hope nothing will be done to give guarantees for the non-occupation of Madagascar and Reunion, the large island just below it. The Japanese might well turn up at the former one of these fine days, and Vichy will offer no more resistance to them than in French Indochina. A Japanese air, submarine, and or cruiser base at Diego Suarez would paralyze our whole convoy route both to the Middle East and to the Far East. And considering it was March 1942, just months after Pearl, FDR did pretty well in only taking four days to tell his ally that the British had a free hand in Madagascar. No formal deals will be made. With that, actions moved apace. On March 14, 1942, General Sturgis was summoned to the war office and told that occupation of Madagascar would move forward. That operation, ironclad, the seizure of northern Madagascar and the Diego Suarez Bay, would be folded into Operation Bonus, the taking of the entire island, though that operational name would change in a few months. Further, that waiting for the right tidal conditions and moonlight would force this to start in early May, but now Rear Admiral Edward Seifert would be in naval and overall command, while Sturgis would be responsible for subsequent operations once they landed. Then came the first of many mistakes. 
As Seifert was in command of the naval forces at Gibraltar, he would not meet with Sturgis until they could both find time to be free at Freetown, South Africa. When they did meet to go over the particulars, they did so without the operations commanding officer, Lord Mountbatten. Thus were the top three men not on the same page when it came to the details, which is fine if everything went as planned. Now down to specifics. Because the 29th Brigade, along with the number 5 Army Commando Squad, were in Scotland, all loaded down with weapons for another operation, Churchill wanted them to go to the island instead of the Royal Marine Division. Further, the 17th Brigade Group, led by Brigadier G.W.B. Tarleton of the 5th Division, would support the 29th Brigade. The 17th had been about to leave for India, but it was decided to get them to help with the occupation, and only afterward would they continue on their journey. As for the 29th Brigade, under Brigadier Francis Festing, it was made up of the 1st Battalion Royal Scott Fusiliers, the 2nd Battalion South Lancashire Regiment, the 2nd Battalion East Lancashire Regiment, and the 2nd Battalion Royal Welsh Fusiliers. Added to this force would be a mobile armed force, Force B Special Service Squadron of the Royal Armed Corps. This Force B was made up of the 9th Queen's Royal Lancers, the 10th Hussars, and the Queen's Bay, who had six Tetrarch-like tanks and the Royal Tank Regiment with six heavier Valentine tanks. But what made this coming operation revolutionary was that the tanks and other vehicles would be waterproofed and thus able to come to shore under their own power. Hopefully this would catch the French off guard. As for backup, the 29th Brigade would have two units of artillery, the 455th Independent Light Battery, Royal Artillery, which had four 3.7-inch howitzers and two 25-pounders, and the 145th Light Anti-Aircraft Troop with four 40mm Beauforts. The second mistake was that the 17th Brigade, being included at the last minute, not only had the wrong type of ammo for this mission, they had no amphibious training. Still, the entire land force would be designated Force 121 under Sturgis. The next mistake, the biggest one, limited the number of those that could go on shore at any one time. As only four assault ships could be found for Operation Ironclad, the total number going ashore was 323 officers, 4,753 men, and 115 vehicles. Of course, of these, 76 officers and 499 men were allocated to Force HQ, which included the Dock Operating Company and some more men for the Navy, which meant only 209 officers and 3,925 troops would be doing the fighting. Considering that there was much the invaders did not know in regards to the island and the potential response of those on it, there was little enough men for unexpected situations, which normally calls for more men with more guns. That was the men and guns involved. As for the ships, that would be Force H, with ships taken from Gibraltar. Now, the Western Mediterranean could not be left unguarded, obviously, so other ships first had to come to Gibraltar before Force H could depart. But here's where Churchill gets credit 
for being sneaky. As opposed to just bringing other ships to Gibraltar, he was going to ask FDR for some American vessels to come to the rock. That way, after Operation Ironclad got underway, the French would be less likely to retaliate by attacking Gibraltar because of the American ships. Vichy had a relationship with the Americans, and Churchill hoped that they did not want to ruin it. But FDR did Churchill one better. The president said, instead of a temporary measure that you suggested, why don't we give to you two battleships, two cruisers, an aircraft carrier, and a squadron of destroyers to augment the home fleet? Therefore, you could take something from the home fleet, but still protect the home island and keep ironclad a British operation. Churchill could have only smiled when he got the message. On March 13th, Admiral Seyfried was told of this and to be ready to move out at the end of the month. A few days later, March 20th, the Prime Minister met with the First Sea Lord, Sir Dudley Pound, and Sir Charles Porter, the Chief of the Air Staff, at Chequers, to go over Britain's list of the country's naval and air dispositions. For what it's worth, Madagascar was second on the list of things to make happen. So it should come as no surprise that Seyfried was told by Churchill that Ironclad had to succeed, whatever the cost, and no political or other considerations were to restrict his actions in achieving the object of the expedition. Simply, this could not be allowed to fail for any reason. And demonstrating this, Seyfried was then told of what his naval resources would be. The battleship Malaya, the carrier Eagle, the cruiser Hermione, five destroyers, and a second carrier Hermes. Soon after, the cruiser Devonshire and six more destroyers would be added to the list. As these were expected to be the workhorses of the operation, they would be supported by six corvettes, a flotilla of minesweepers, all banger class, two fleet auxiliaries, and the hospital ship Atlantis. But in the coming days, the carrier Hermes would be sunk, just off Ceylon on April 9th, by Japanese bombers. To be sure, the Hermes had had air cover, but the enemy was able to send up dozens of Aichi D-3A Val dive bombers at her, and 32 of them got through. But clearly, the Admiralty, given the importance of Madagascar, had to come up with a replacement fast and that would be the indomitable. Then again, it was found that the other carrier, Eagle, required repairs, so she was out too, to be replaced by HMS Illustrious, and she herself had just departed the U.S. receiving repairs. But on board her were 25 of the new American Grumman Marlette fighters. Thus it would be all of these vessels grouped together under Force F. Now that ironclad was shaping up, it was time for absolute secrecy. British warships operating out of Cape Town, South Africa, captured all ships heading towards Madagascar. Prime Minister Smuts asked about all this activity, but Churchill stayed quiet. In fact, Smuts did not know of the operation until March 24th, the day after the fleet set sail, and even then the South African leader was not told the name of the operation. Everything had to be on the down low. But the problem with that was, 
the British nationals on Madagascar, and yes, there were some, they would have no advanced warning. Chance would decide their fate. As for General Charles de Gaulle, he had not let up with his paper bombs aimed at Churchill to take the island, and that the Free French should be involved in this. Churchill, replying to Foreign Minister Anthony Eden concerning de Gaulle, replied, The Free French are out of the business and should be kept out. But all the more is necessary that we establish ourselves there on the island. Thus, the British kept quiet about ironclad to de Gaulle, except to say, We are watching the situation carefully. We are doing nothing for the present. Of course, the downside to this was that de Gaulle rightfully believed the British were doing nothing about Madagascar, so he would try another route with another ally, the South Africans. The result being, de Gaulle sent a colonel to Pretoria to see if they would help invade the island, but Smuts had been warned by Churchill not to tell the Free French anything but to delay. Again, it's not that Smuts knew the details. As de Gaulle had not heard a word from Churchill or Smuts, he continued with his plans. He made Admiral Musier the leader of the Free French forces whenever they occupied Madagascar. But things got murky on March 10th, when Vichy representatives, including Peyton himself, told the Americans that neither the Japanese nor the Germans had made suggestions to the French government with regard to the use of Madagascar as a base, to wit London or Washington could have said, and we're supposed to just believe you? For they obviously knew more than Vichy did. But now the British press got involved. They sensed that something was in the air about Madagascar, saying Vichy troops were being transferred from Dakar to Madagascar. Tension was rising on all sides. So it's no surprise that French newspapers backing Pétain got involved. A small part of an article was the equivalent of a shot across the bow to the British, but also to the Americans. It read, The Anglo-Saxon press has opened a propaganda campaign against Madagascar. This press offensive corresponds in every detail to that launched against Syria before the invasion of that country by Anglo-Gaulist forces. But will the United States officially attempt an open act of war against France, or will they once again delegate the job to de Gaulle? The British weekly newspaper, The Economist, shot back with this, an odd fact about minor Vichy officials that are prepared to defend French territory to the last, but only against the democracies. This was getting ugly, but more important, it caused more and more eyes to turn to Madagascar. Churchill's building secret mission was risking becoming less secret all the time. By mid-March, the British government wanted to step in, but Churchill wisely shut this down. Anything from the government but disinterest would attract attention, the last thing the Prime Minister needed. As the push-off date came closer, London went into deception mode. First, boxes of supplies for ironclad had Rangoon stamped on them as if that was their destination. 
Next, several buildings were cleared out in Burma to supposedly house the staff of the 29th Brigade Group. While this was going on, Churchill kept rearranging the following words, Please help us with Madagascar, on messages going to FDR. But despite the volume, the president said no. Our relationship with Vichy is tenuous, and it may come in handy after the invasion and occupation. Either way, no. There was more deception, but this was mostly against the very soldiers who would be doing the fighting, as they loved to talk to each other and write letters home. But, fortunately, most stayed confused, and on March 23rd at 10.30 p.m., the expeditionary force got aboard their ships. This was the first offensive operation since the Empire of Japan had entered the war. Hopefully, all would go well. If not, this could be the last offensive operations, and the only way to end and win a war is with offensive operations. Mm -hmm.